We are in Joshua today. We are finishing out our series in the book of Joshua, Joshua 24, 14 through 15. This is probably the most famous passage in the entire book of Joshua. It'll sound familiar once I start reading it. But first, I wanna, I wanna ask you something. Raise your hand if you're familiar with a guy named George Raft. Anybody know that name? Anybody? Okay. Maybe a few of you, not many of you. Believe it or not, in the 1930s, he was one of the biggest movie stars in Hollywood. But he made a couple of bad decisions in the early 40s that torpedoed his career. The first one was when he was asked to be the star of a, of a movie called the, the Maltese Falcon, which went on to be a classic. They needed a tough guy, and, and George Raft was the tough guy actor of that time, but he wasn't interested in the role, so they gave it to Humphrey Bogart, who in spite of having the first name Humphrey, had a face of a tough guy, and uh, he took that role and became very famous. Uh, then a few years later, some more people wanted to make a movie called Casablanca. You may be familiar with that one. Again, they needed a tough guy actor. He's kind of a lone wolf sort of guy who runs a, a speakeasy in Morocco in the early 40s. Um, but George Raft's quote, according to Hollywood legend, was, I'm not going to make a movie with some unknown Swedish broad. That would be Ingrid Bergman. Uh, and he gave that part up. Again, Humphrey Bogart benefited, became a, a big star, a, a lasting star, and George Raft faded into obscurity. Now, that's not the only story like this in Hollywood history. I've got a few others. Marlon Brando was offered the lead role in both Lawrence of Arabia and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but he said no to both because apparently it was an offer he could refuse. You see what I did there? Come on. Uh, Gary Cooper was offered the role of uh, Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind and said no and regretted it. But life has a way of coming back around. So years later, when Gary Cooper's career was fading, he was considered washed up. He played the part of Will Kane in High Noon, which is an enduring classic. The only reason he got that role, Gregory Peck was a bigger star at that time. He turned it down because he didn't want to play a washed up old gunfighter. And Gary Cooper was very glad it revived his career. Kind of a similar story. When they first started putting James Bond on the screen, this is in the 60s, Dr. No was the first James Bond movie. They wanted desperately for Cary Grant to play 007. He would have made a great one, but he knew it was going to be a movie series and he didn't want to be locked into playing the same character over and over again. So they found a guy that nobody had ever heard of, the Scottish guy named Sean Connery. Uh, Connery, of course, became a huge star. But again, life has a way of coming back around. When Connery was an older man and, and his career was fading, uh, Peter Jackson was making the Lord of the Rings movies. This was at the beginning of the 2000s, and he desperately wanted Connery to play Gandalf. But Connery had never read the books. He didn't know what a hobbit was. He didn't want to spend a year or more living and making a movie in New Zealand. And so Ian McKellen became Gandalf, made millions of dollars, won an Academy Award, and is very grateful. But the all-time queen of bad decisions in movie roles is Jane Fonda. Let me list for you the movies in the 60s and 70s that she said no to. Dr. Zhivago, Bonnie and Clyde, Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, Network. Look them up. They were big hits. They're, they're considered classics today. Of course, if you were alive back then, you know that Jane Fonda made some other really bad decisions back then too. But we've all made bad decisions, haven't we? If we're honest, we all could name things we deeply regret. Some of those are missed opportunities, 
I wish I would have spent more time with my kids when they were little. I wish I would have talked to my parents when they were still alive. I wish I, wish that I would have started saving up for retirement and then I could be retired now. Uh, or, or there's those impulsive words and actions. I wish that I hadn't said that. I wish that I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't gotten in that car. I wish I hadn't joined that company. I wish I hadn't uh, gotten involved in that relationship. And then there's bad habits. Every person I've ever met who's struggles with addiction can trace it back to a moment in time when they chose to start smoking, to start drinking, to start taking those pills. And they wish they could go back in time and reverse that. See, the good news, literally the good news, is that God is a God of redemption. That doesn't get communicated often enough because that's the good news. The good news is that God takes what is broken and fixes it. God takes what is worn out and the world has given up on and said, that's my child, that's my person. I will love them to the end. And Jane Fonda, of all people, can testify to that because some years ago she accepted Christ as her savior. Now, I know very little about her testimony. I don't know what her Christian life is like right now, if she goes to church or where she goes. I just know that if she was sincere when she believed in Jesus and his blood, his shed blood for her sins, then there is nothing that can stand in the way of her and the love of God. And yes, in the 1960s, when my dad was in Vietnam, she was doing activities that I would consider treasonous, and yet God doesn't hold that against her. You care how I feel, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. Jesus took her shame. Jesus took her sin. And he took my shame. And he took my sin. And there's nothing that separates us from the Father. And we're brother and sister in Christ. And so today, if, if you know the gospel and you've received it, you may think, yeah, Jeff, that's, that happened to me a long time ago. Good news. But that's not the end of your journey. See, today we come to a crossroads. There's an ultimatum. There's a decision you have to make. This passage I'm going to read contains some words that some of you probably have on a plaque on the wall in your house or maybe even on the doorframe on the outside. But it's not just a slogan. It's not just a motto. It is a a challenge, an ultimatum that you can respond to in one of three ways. And I'm going to walk you through those at the end. But first, let's read the ultimatum itself. Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So if you've been with us or if you know the book of Joshua, you know that Joshua... At the age of 80, was given the most important task of his life. And as I shared with you last week, don't ever let anybody tell you that your age defines how God can use you. Whether you are a child, a teenager, a young adult, whether you're in your middle years, or whether you are in what we refer to as the golden years, God is through with you when you stand before him in judgment. Until then, he can use you. Joshua's most important life work started when he was 80 years old, when God said, lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River, conquer the promised land. This is the nation where you will. This is your inheritance, but you have to claim it. 
Joshua and the, the Israelites crossed the Jordan and they fought for seven years. And I said at the beginning of this series, book of Joshua is, we should read it as Christians. We should read it as a manual on how to live the life God has for us as believers. Because our tendency is to find a place as Christians where we say, this is good enough. I, I've made it. And just rest there. We sign peace treaties with the remaining sins in our lives and settle in for a nice life of spiritual mediocrity. It's as if the children of Israel had invaded the land, conquered Jericho, and said, eh, that's good enough. No, there was a whole land to conquer. There were places for everybody. They had to keep pressing on. They had to keep fighting. They had to keep fighting the good fight, doing the will of God. And that was seven years of warfare. Now Joshua's in his hundreds. This is his last public speech. He's gathered together the men he fought alongside, the elders of Israel, and he says, choose this day whom you will serve. Now think about that statement. First of all, he's talking to guys who fought alongside him. It's not like they were religiously unaffiliated until this day. They essentially declared their faith in Christ. They could say to, to Joshua at this moment, how can you say to me, choose this day? I chose a long time ago. You fought, you fought, you fought bled and died. Well, not died. You fought and bled and shed blood alongside me. How can you now ask me to choose? Didn't I choose back then? Joshua would say, no. Your commitment to him was great then. Has nothing to do with who you are now. The old hymn hadn't been written yet, but, but there's an old hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's not about losing your salvation, but it is about missing out on what God has for you. Because you may not consciously do it, but at some point you start to drift. You start to slide. You start to recede from that full commitment to God that you once had, that once was the, the thing that made your heart beat faster, that drove you on in life. Joshua is saying, Get back into it. Get back into the fight. There's this story. I don't know if it's true. I hope it's not. But uh, a husband and wife, uh, the wife came to her husband and said, you know, you never tell me you love me. I just once I'd like to hear those words. I can't remember the last time you said the words, I love you. And he said, I said that on our wedding day. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. That doesn't work. Let me just tell you, free marriage advice, guys, that doesn't work, okay? And you may say, well, you know, it's not my style to be all gushy and, and, and verbal and, and, and you know, sentimental. I, I show my love in other ways. Yeah, well, do it anyway. Suck it up, buttercup, tell her you love her uh, because she needs to hear that. And, and by the way, ladies, that he needs to hear that too. But what it says to us is we as Christians can't say, yeah, I'm of course I'm committed to God. Yeah, I got baptized when I was seven years old. I've been a member of this church for 35 years. I'm here on Thanksgiving weekend, doggone it. Am I not committed? None of that is proof. <clears throat> what we need is to understand that our tendency is to drift away from God. Our tendency is to wander. We need to constantly renew that commitment. And today you'll have an opportunity to do that, just like these men in Israel. The second thing we notice is Joshua doesn't ask for some meaningless symbolic commitment. He doesn't say, sign this document. He doesn't say, raise your hand. He says, put away your gods. Have you noticed that? He says, put away the gods that your fathers worshipped. 
He knows. He knows that some of these men, and this was an ongoing problem in the history of Israel. He knows that some of these men, while they outwardly worship Yahweh, and they sincerely worship Him, they sincerely believe, yeah, you got us out of Egypt. You brought us freedom. You, you've brought us through the wilderness. You, you gave us the strength to conquer this land. Praise Yahweh. But, you know, it's awful dry. And I'm a farmer. And Baal's the god of, of rain. And, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have a little statue of Baal back in my house. My, my dad, he worshipped Amun-Ra back in Egypt, and, and he had good things to say about him. What does it hurt to have a little statue of Amun-Ra, too? And maybe Ashtoreth, she'll, she can do some good things for me. I mean, who, who cares? I, don't, I, can worship, I can do all the things it says in the Torah and, and then have a little insurance. And God says, no. You know what the first two commandments are of the Ten Commandments? You will have no other gods before me. And you will not make a graven image. Both of them are about idolatry. Both of them are about the exclusivity of our God. He will not have rivals. It's Him and Him alone, or it's not Him at all. And I say that because I know, I know probably nobody here has a statue in their home of Baal or Ashtoreth or, or, or Amun-Ra or Buddha or Allah or anybody else that you could name. But... We've all got our false gods. We've all got our idols. We've all got things the world tells us, you must have this or you can't be happy. We've all got those things that we say, I, I trust God for my salvation, for my forgiveness, but man, if I'm going to be happy, I need this too. And maybe it's your family. And maybe it's sex and romantic love. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's the approval of others. Maybe it's political power. We've got all kinds of idols that, that wage war in our hearts and, and constantly strive to displace Jesus on the throne of our lives. So what I'm asking you to do today is take inventory and be honest with yourself and say, Lord, I love you, I want to love you more, and, and I, you, I need your help to put this other thing in its proper place. So, that's the ultimatum God is making us today. And I talked earlier about three options you have. When God says, choose this day whom you will serve, you've got three options. And the first option is, obviously, you could say yes. Yes. Lord, I will, from this day forward... November 27, 2022, this is a day I'm, I'm, I'm putting, uh, putting it on paper, putting it in, in my mind. I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm anchoring my soul to Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my hope and firm foundation. He'll never let me down. I want to serve you above all other things. From this day forward, I want everybody to know that you're my king and nobody else. But what about that for me and my house part? How does that work? When we were in our early 30s, Carrie and I bought our first house. We were really excited. And we got a good house. I, I still looking back on it, I can't believe as little money as I made, and she was a stay-at-home mom, I can't believe we were able to buy this house. It was a big house, I mean, big for us, and, and had this massive yard because it was a corner lot. The only bad thing is that massive yard meant that was a lot of grass to mow. And I don't mind mowing, but that took a long time. I have a very good wife. I don't mean to throw any of you ladies under the bus, but you, your husbands are going to look at you sideways when I say this. She would actually help me mow the yard. She would actually, on Saturday mornings, she would say, yeah, you do the weed eating, I'll do the mowing. Problem was, I had bought this big Toro mower that weighed more than she did. And no matter how hard she tried, she could not start that thing. 
So I would have to start it for her and then she would mow and I'd go into the garage and get the weed eater and I'd do the trimming. And that's how we did it every Saturday morning. So one Saturday in the summer, this is what my across the street neighbor sees. He looks out his window, just happens to see me, a guy he barely knows, start a lawnmower, hand it to his wife and then disappear into the garage. (laughs) And I'm not making any of this up. He walks over and says, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I, you're my new hero. I, if you wrote a book, I would buy it. How did you do that? And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, this is something we do together. I do the weed eating. She does the mowing. He goes, no, no, don't ruin it for me. This is the greatest moment of my life. I, I'm inspired. Now, now anybody who's, who knows anything about us, has spent time with us, knows that's not the way things work in our family. Uh, it's not like I'm Lord of the Manor, King of the Castle, and I get everything I want. In fact, biblically speaking, I shouldn't be. My job as a husband is to love her as Christ loved the church. Did Jesus sit up on a throne and have his disciples bring him, you know, tea and scones? No, Jesus served them, and that's the way I should be as a husband. Not saying I'm, I'm good at it, but that should be my goal. However, when Joshua said these words, we're talking 3,500 years ago, in the ancient world, and still in some places in the world today, it was very much an honor-shame culture. The idea we have today that every person is an individual, every person chooses their own destiny, their own life, that was unheard of. Back then, your goal as a human being was to bring honor to your family and to your village. So if your dad said, we worship Yahweh in this house, you worshiped Yahweh. And that that boggles our minds as, as 21st century people because we're very individualistic and we think, well, you know, when you get to be a teenager or a young adult, you choose your own path, you choose your own faith, you choose your own beliefs. No. In that culture, if dad said it, you did it. You wouldn't think of bringing dishonor to your family. So how does that translate to today? Joshua could say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I can't say, it doesn't mean the same thing when I say it. So what does it mean? What it means is that I recognize that as a husband and as a father, I can't choose Christ for my wife, for my kids. I can't choose Christ for my neighbors. I can't choose Christ for you. But God has given you to me as friends, as people that he's brought into my life to have an impact on. And I can say that when I stand in judgment before God Almighty, which I will, that I want to live in such a way that I'll be able to say on that day, Lord, I did everything I could to make it likely that they would follow you. I tried my best to live, to walk in integrity and humility, honest about my sins, but overcoming them by the power of Christ, to pray for them daily, to share with them about my faith and what you've done for me and and what the scriptures are teaching me so they will see faith in action, to to. Make an environment where faith is likely. The choice is up to them. So that's what it means today to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It means I'm taking responsibility for the people you've given me responsibility over. I'm not walking away like some, like some okay, I, I almost said like some teenager at McDonald's who says that's not my job. Sorry, guys, you're very hardworking too. But you know the stereotype, right? And we as Christians can be that way. I've got my little thing over here. That's not my problem. It is your problem. Saying yes to this ultimatum says, I take responsibility. I'm going to live like a missionary. I'm going to to be a pastor to my family. I'm going to do everything I can. 
to lead them to Christ and to equip them to walk and to follow His road. There's a second option, and that's the option in which you say no. And I don't recommend that. In fact, I would plead with you not to say no. But I recognize, I recognize that today many people hear the gospel and say, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. It, it's, it sounds too good to be true. It's, it's too much of a fairy tale. I can't accept it. Or others might say, I, I think it might be true, but I'm just not ready to make the changes in my lifestyle that would be required of someone who followed Jesus. And I just want to tell you that there is a path that leads to life, and it's a narrow one. Jesus said this. There's a path that leads to destruction, and it's a wide one. And don't go the way you see most people going. I know, I know this is the easier path. I know this looks in the short term more fruitful. But if you are considering saying no to Christ, I just want you to know that there is a place of eternal separation from the God who made you and loves you and is the source of everything good you've ever experienced. And the path that leads to Christ, the narrow path that leads to Christ, is the only way away from that end that destruction that the scriptures talk about. You can say yes, or you can say no. But there's a third option, and this is the one that I'm afraid a whole lot of Christians choose. And that's to say, I don't need to choose. The third option says, I know that Jesus died for me. I've trusted in him. I was baptized. I I prayed the prayer. I I know that I'm saved. And listen, as a a pastor, I I don't have, knowing whether you're really saved or not is above my pay grade. I don't know. Here's what I believe. I believe that God's mercy is great. God's grace is amazing. And that even a a Christian who has a mediocre, half-hearted commitment to Christ his whole life is still saved because he believed in Jesus for salvation. But even if I'm right, even if you never do one thing for the kingdom of God and the Lord on your dying day welcomes you into heaven, think about all you've still lost. Think about a life wasted, opportunities thrown out the window. I, after the first service, one of our members, one of our life group leaders, and, and a, a really uh, committed member of this church came to me and he said, you know, that sermon reminded me of my dad because when my dad was 40, I would have described him as a mediocre Christian, as a, as a person of, of moderate commitment to Christ. But when he was 40... He gave himself completely to Jesus, and it changed everything. It changed my destiny. Through me, it changed my kids, their kids, people my dad never met, people he did meet, people he worked with, but ripple effects of just that one man making that decision. He said, I thank God for that. So think about this. Yes, you could say, eh, I'm good enough. My my life is fine. I, I know I'm not all that I should be in Christ, but... As long as I know I'm saved, it's okay. Think about what you're missing. Think about the opportunity you're squandering. Think about this also. This is why churches are failing today. It's not because of unbelievers. It's not because of the media. It's not because of other faiths. Nothing can stop the church of God except the church of God. When we choose not to follow Him. When we choose to say, eh, I'll show up when it's convenient. I'll I'll do the bare minimum. Let me just say this. 
I, I'm not going to go any further down that line except to say read the book of Judges if you want to see what a half-hearted commitment gets you. It leads to uh, chaos and destruction and depravity and, and, and misery. But instead, I want to share with you one of my favorite movie lines. So movie Braveheart is uh, very violent. I don't recommend it to you. It is written by an evangelical Christian, so that's interesting. But uh, also, I have to say, since I'm a history buff, historically, very, very sketchy. There were Scots who fought against the English and won. There was apparently a guy named William Wallace who led them. Very little else do we know. So the movie's basically fiction. But there's a part early in the movie it's Sterling. There's a battle about to take place. This little ragged band of Scots are facing off across the plain from this massive army of English. And they've got horses and they've got lances and they've got all kinds of weapons. The Scots are ready to go home. They don't want to die. And William Wallace comes riding up. And from horseback, he says the following. He says, if you run, you may live. Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom? And of course, they charge and they win. Toward the end of the movie, Wallace has captured the English, have him. They've gathered a mob. They're going to take him out. They're going to draw and quarter him. They're going to hang him. They're going to do all kinds of horrible things to him. The princess of Wales is there. She's fallen in love with him. Again, total fiction. Makes for a good movie. And she pleads with him. Beg for mercy. Confess all the crimes that you're accused of. Throw yourself at the knees of the king and maybe he'll kill you quickly. Maybe he'll even let you live in the Tower of London as a prisoner until your dying day. She said, otherwise you'll die and it'll be awful. And he says, every man dies, not every man truly lives. That movie, again, is fiction, but it gets something right. Every person dies. You know, there's only one thing that will keep you from dying, and that is the return of Jesus. So unless that happens in our lifetime, we are all someday going to die. And I can tell you, I've thought about this, not to be morbid, but on my dying day, if I'm awake and aware, I will look back over the course of my life I might even think about this day, but I will certainly think about the opportunities through the course of my life that I had to commit myself fully to Christ. And if between November 22nd, 2000 and November 27th, 2022, and whenever I die, if in the intermediate years I live most of that time for me, if I treat God like a cosmic butler who is supposed to give me what I want in exchange for a few religious trinkets that I offer him, if that's the course of my life, then I will die in profound regret. And I will wish I could come back till today and say, today I follow Jesus. Today I give myself all over again to Him. And because I don't want that to happen and because I love my family and I love you and I love everybody God's brought into my life and most of all because He loves me, I want to say to you, my church family, that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will follow Him faithfully, as faithfully as we can. Will we fail sometimes? Absolutely. And that failure will always be followed by real repentance. 
calling sin what it is, bringing it before the Father to be cleansed all over again, and getting back on the horse and fighting the good fight until I have no more breath in my lungs. That is my, my declaration, my testimony. That is what I commit to you today. So what about you? See, we're at a crossroads today, and, and you have an option. You have three options, actually. And if you choose the one that Joshua wants you to, that I want you to, that the Lord wants you to, the good news is you have an opportunity to say it to him. Actually, two. I'm about to lead us in prayer, and you can pray to him while I'm praying, and God will hear us both. And you can say to him everything that is on your heart. You can say, Lord, I, I, I feel like I'm going to fail. I, I always mess up, but I want to serve you fully. Give me the strength. Give me the guidance. Give me the wisdom. Give me the courage. And then after the prayer, we're going to sing. And song, these are not just songs. This is not just an opportunity to, to be involved in music. This is an opportunity to mean the words you sing and to, and to pray in song and to say, Lord, I commit myself fully to you today. And if you don't know Jesus at all, and you want this relationship I've been talking about, this forgiveness, this good news to become yours. During that song, these two songs we're going to sing, it's a time of invitation too. You can come forward. And I'd love to lead you in a prayer where you accept Christ as your Savior and your life has changed forever. And if, if all of that sounds too intimidating and you just need to ask questions later on, I'll be out there after the service in the Next Steps area. Just come to me, come to Alan, and we'll be happy to talk with you and pray with you.